Welcome to the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast, the podcast that travels back into time to review classic episodes of Jim Crockett Promotions' Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling as it appears on the NBC Universal streaming service Peacock, as well as internationally on the WWE Network. Before we begin today's voyage, I'd just like to note we have social media on several platforms. Our Twitter is the most active, but we have a Facebook page and more. Just search at Mid-Atlantic Pod and look for the logo. And if you want to follow along with us but don't have access to Peacock or the network, you can still do so by heading over to the mighty midatlanticgateway.com and checking out David Tobb's reviews of these classic shows. We'd also appreciate you heading over to youtube.com slash midatlanticpod where you can find full podcasts, truncated versions of classic episodes, plus special audio and video clips exclusive to our page and often with the great assistance of the mighty Mid-Atlantic Gateway website. Go to youtube.com slash midatlanticpod and please subscribe, watch, and like the videos. It would be doing us a great service. Now with all that out of the way, today in episode 48, we take a look at the television that was taped on Thursday, December 16th, 1982 at the WPCQ Studios Channel 36 in Charlotte, North Carolina and began airing in local markets beginning that weekend of Saturday, December 25th, Christmas. And I'd like to bring in my co-host right now, Roman Gomez. Roman, how are you today? I'm doing okay, Mike. How's everything with you? No complaints whatsoever. We're going to talk about the season-ending, the year-ending episode of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling for 1982, so there are far worse things out there, my friend. Sounds good. Let's do it. We start the show off with Bob Cottle at the desk running down what we're going to be seeing on the show, and he's flanked by Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. And of course, Bob wants to get their thoughts, but quickly, Jay requests that they run a tape from last week's Worldwide Wrestling where he and Ricky Steamboat faced off against the private Jim Nelson and the future Black Bart Ricky Harris, and we'll hear that right now. A number of greats, including Rick Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. Fellas, nice to have you. Always great to see you in action, Jay. And the fans, I might say right here, are delighted to see Jay Youngblood back. Well, I'll tell you what, it's almost a miracle that I am back, and it's a pleasure being back. First of all, I'd like to say that we'd like to show the folks something that happened here last week. All right, we got a, we got a film. Let's watch it right here, fans. Oh, he knows how to break the hole. Oh, 
He's challenging you. He's challenging you. Come on, chicken. Come on. He's challenging you. Come on, why don't you come on back? And the most surprised people in the world had to be Sergeant Slaughter and Jim Nelson when you broke that Cobra clutch. I'll tell you what, I got the tape of when he did put the Cobra clutch on me and put me out of wrestling there, Bob. And Rick and I studied it. Rick drilled it in my head. He said, Jason, study it. Study it. Study it. And that's exactly what I did. Slaughter, I broke your Cobra clutch in front of everybody here last week. Everybody saw it. But I'll tell you what, you can get the tape and see how I did it. You can go in and study it and see how I broke it. But there's not only one way. I've only figured out only one way. i figured out more than one way, two ways. It could be three-way slaughter. Anytime you put it on, brother, I'm going to break it. It's got to unsettle them a little bit, Rick. You know something? They were out here, I know, bragging week upon week upon week when this man was laid up. He was not wrestling. He wasn't making any money. And they just got out here and time and time again telling everybody that, oh, Steamboat's crying in the shadows and Youngblood's never going to be able to make it back. The man has none other but made it back. He's figured a way to break the hold. The next thing on our line, the next thing on our agenda is to get them world tag belts. All right, fans, we'll be back. There we hear from Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood, who got out of Private Jim Nelson's Cobra Clutch on Worldwide Wrestling last week right in front of Sergeant Slaughter. Well, Roman, I tell you what, Steamboat and Youngblood came back, rejuvenated the show, but they are also rejuvenated themselves as a team. Youngblood, back from his debilitating injury, put on him by Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronoodle, all fired up now that they've been able to work themselves out of the Cobra Clutch and saying not that, that there's only one way out of it, he's got several ways out of it, and I'm sure... Sergeant Slaughter's got his thoughts on that that we're probably going to be hearing here in the next upcoming weeks about his version of the Cobra Clutch, but a big feather in the cap of Jay Youngblood. Yes, and, you know, Slaughter on commentary told Nelson to put it on him. And I got a little confused here because Nelson puts on the Cobra Clutch and both men fall down to the canvas. And immediately I thought, what a cool move by Nelson. He took him down like in a Russian leg sweep because he still had the Cobra clutch on, but then you hear the commentator saying he got out, but he got out of it. And on the replay, you can see young blood did grapevine the leg a little bit to knock Nelson down, but it still looked like Nelson had the Cobra clutch. So the idea of getting out of the Cobra clutch, I thought was great. I just wish they had done it a little bit different way. Cause when I rewound it, it still seemed like Nelson had the Cobra clutch on him. And what this leads into is a theme for the show, which is matches. Just matches. Matches that go on for a few minutes, nothing over eight minutes long, and they exist. They happen. Now, this show was taking place only a day after the television tapings from last week's show because of the break the Jim Crockett Promotions takes for the holidays, so this whole thing was taped a couple of weeks beforehand, and they were just pretty much holding time here and just pushing some things forward as we led into the shows that were taking place on Christmas and on December 26th in Charlotte and in Greensboro. And Steamboat and Youngblood are in our first match against Bill White and Frank Monty. Our referee for the day is Tommy Young. And really not much to say about this match here. Only went a couple of minutes and Youngblood got the pin over Monty after a slingshot. Yeah, they were just nonstop motion steamboat and young blood and you know they emerged victorious in about two and a half minutes and it was definitely a showcase match for steamboat and young blood 
Then it was time for our next match featuring the one-man gang in against Ron Ritchie. And on last week's show, I, I wondered if that was going to be Ron Ritchie's last appearance. But with the television tapings taking place on back-to-back days, he did show up for this one last time. And this ends up being his last recorded match with Jim Crockett Promotions. He ends up appearing in Portland to begin 1983, but Ron Ritchie taking the loss here to the one-man gang. Two minutes and 51 seconds, big power slam. (laughs) Sir Oliver Humperdinck at ringside said, call it tons of fun. And Humperdinck did have some words of wisdom about his one-man gang and his philosophy during the match. Competitor. He's been around. He's been in the ring with everybody. But the gang is having no trouble at all. He's just going to work. As big and as strong and as powerful as he is, Sir Oliver, why has he got to get Richie in the ropes and then into the corner and claw at his eyes and choke and rip and Inside the perimeters of that, those ropes, Bob, is legal. The corners are legal. He's got a five count to break a hold. If the referee deems it illegal, he can go to four with that hold, as long as he doesn't go past five. Now that's the secret to successful wrestling. Use the rules. Don't abuse the rules. Come on, gang! And there you heard from Sir Oliver Humperdinck during One Man Gangs. Two minute, 51 second destruction of Ron Ritchie. And Roman, you know, there wasn't much to it, but it's exactly what you want. You got three minutes, go out there, be big, and get over. Yeah, and Ritchie was able to get in a little bit of offense, but he just could knock the big man off of his feet. And One Man Gang with the power slam came out on top. Yeah, it was very, very simple. And then after the match, Sir Oliver Humperdinck, of course, was over there with Bob Cottle hyping up his man and hyping up the house of Humperdinck. And what was very noticeable was the fact that there was no mention of Mid-Atlantic Television champion Leroy Brown. Now, we see this big monster one-man gang come into the area and be under the employ of the house of Humperdinck. Makes you wonder, man, when you have so many giants, you don't have any at all. And would we be seeing Leroy Brown exit stage right very soon? The answer is yes, but we'll get to that a little bit later on. It was then time for our next match. Dory Funk Jr. against Mark Fleming. This may have been Mark Fleming's like seventh or eighth match. He had only begun wrestling November 19th, I believe it was, as he as he writes in his book. And he had barely seen any action whatsoever. He had appeared on the TV tapings last week. During this match, you know, it, it gave time because it was Dory Funk Jr. So it went four minutes flat, you know, very professional performance that way. During it and during some of the exchanging of holds, it gave Bob a chance to reiterate what we'd be seeing on the show and to remind everybody that, At some point, coming very soon, we would be seeing Bruiser Brody in Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. So, Dory Funk Jr. goes four minutes, flat, spinning toehold, gets the victory, and we're going to be hearing from him in a little bit, Roman, but just another workman-like performance for Dory Funk Jr. Dory looked good. He got his stuff in, and then, like you said, applied the spinning toehold, and that was all she wrote. Then it was time for some in lieu of promos from Dory Funk Jr. At least I believe this was the first set of promos that we would get that everybody else in the moment at the time would be getting their localized promos. But we had Dory Funk Jr. out there kind of talking about everything that was going on. And the reason that I'm going to go ahead and actually play this promo is because 
he talks about his match coming up with Sweet Brown Sugar, and he talks about the fact that Ernie Shavers is going to be the referee because in Greensboro, they'd be doing the thing. So this is about as close to a localized promo as we're going to get out of these in lieu of spots. So here is Dory Funk Jr. And we just saw him in action, and here he is, and another another great win for Dory Funk Jr., Dory. It was. It was rough competition, but I was fortunately able to win that match. Talking about the rough competition, boy, are we seeing it now. We saw the one-man gang in our program a little bit earlier. We're going to see Bruiser Brody a little later on. Uh, the U.S. champ, uh, let's don't forget guys like Jay Youngblood and Rick Steamboat. What a tremendous thing it is to see them back together as a team. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you can't take, away, take it away from Jay Youngblood, Youngblood, Ricky Steamboat. They're tremendous athletes. I really honestly think, looking from my point of view, that they've got a chance to win that World Tag Team Championship. Uh, other great wrestlers around here. Sweet Brown Sugar, yeah, one of the greatest athletes that I've ever seen. But he's also not only a great wrestler, he's got a big mouth. And he spouted off his mouth at the wrong person. And I believe, I sincerely believe there's a conspiracy here to get rid of me because of my wrestling talent and because maybe because I happen to have a little bit more money than most of the other wrestlers in this area. But the promotion is together with Sweet Brown Sugar They've got a referee coming in the area, a very famous person by the name of Ernie Shavers. Right. And I know he's a great fighter, but he's stepping in the ring to referee some of my matches. I want to give him fair warning. Shavers, keep your hands in your pockets. Don't bring him out unless Sweet Brown Sugar's shoulders are on that mat. Bring out your hands to count one, two, three on him. Because if, you, if Shavers brings his hands out and takes one swing at me, and I know the people think... Maybe Ernie Shavers will take a punch. Yeah, would you tangle with Ernie? I know what they're tangled with him. I would tear Ernie Shavers to pieces. Ernie Shavers is a boxer and maybe a great boxer, but he's not a wrestler. He's not a fighter. He didn't grow up in Texas like I did. I've fought animals. I'm talking about cattle, horses, and I've fought people, and I know how to handle myself. And Shavers just better take care of refereeing. And just don't lay his hands on me because it's fair warning to Ernie Shavers. He's been told ahead of time, leave the wrestling to me. He can fight. He's a boxer. You better not touch me. There we heard from the former NWA World Heavyweight Champion, Dory Funk Jr., $100,000 up on the line. The time limit has been extended. 20 minutes now. Ernie Shavers is going to be the referee for these matches coming up between Mr. Funk and Sweet Brown Sugar, who would we be seeing in our next match, Skip Young against Ken Timms. And I would argue, Roman, that this, even though it only went 3 minutes and 47 seconds, because of the two professionals that were involved in it, and the fact that it didn't go as long as our main event, and we'll get to that a little bit later on, I would argue, uh, second for second, minute for minute, this was the best match on the show. Yeah, this was not a bad match. Um, it was a good victory for Sugar. You know, at the end, he was going for a flying head scissors and changed it up to a victory roll. And victory roll is a good move that you don't often see a lot. You know, and it was a good victory for Sweet Brown Sugar this week. It was, and it was a pretty sweet roll. The only 
negative was, unfortunately, he wasn't able to catch the legs of Tim's and, and cradle him up that way. It always looks a little bit better to me when you're able to grab the legs, but, you know, made up for it because yep. he is a pro that's been around for so long and had to work down in Florida with that evil eye on him at all times that when he had his Tim's shoulders pinned down to the mat, he made sure to actually, you know, put a little extra pressure on the arms and everything. Just, you know, a small, subtle touch that, again, makes sense when you're actually trying to go for a legitimate pin. Yeah, it made it look a lot better, and I, I agree. When you can actually hook the legs, you know, I think about Bret Hart beating Bigelow at one of the King of the Rings that way. You know, he was able to do the victory roll and hook the legs, and that's when it, that move looks the best. And we're going to hear from Sweet Brown Sugar here in a moment, and this is our set of babyface interviews for the day. We not only hear from Sweet Brown Sugar talking about Dory Funk Jr., but also Mid-Atlantic champion Jack Briscoe and a very special appearance by the rowdy one himself, back in the studio, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Sweet brown sugar. Sugar, good to see you. Dory Funk Jr. is having a lot of things to say about sweet brown sugar. I heard what he had to say, but let me tell you something, Mr. Funk. Don't you ever forget that you're the one that drew first blood. When a man comes out here and do what you did to me on national television, that tells me one thing. You must be tired of living. So I'll tell you what, Mr. Funk. When I get a hold of you, just to show us I'm young, gifted, and black, you can bet your life on it that you're going to be one well broke and whoop man when I turn you loose. Yeah, all right, sweet brown sugar. Mid-Atlantic champ Jack Briscoe, Jack. Well, you know, the house of Humperdinka is shaking because I've taken the pillar out of the post right here. I've got the Mid-Atlantic championship. Now he's bringing on all these giants at George Gray, at Brody, you know, Joe LaDuke. All of them, they're one of the chances this belt. Well, I'm standing here right here telling them they're welcome to come and get this belt because we're ready for a house of Humperdinck, any of them, all of them. And we're a little bit tired of that rooster running around the ring all the time, spouting off. So we've gotten together here, and we're ready for each and every one of them. All right, Jack, anyway. I tell you, it's going to be great. All right, fans, and here he is, Roddy Piper. Roddy? Yes, well... I didn't get a look. Let me just look at that face, Roddy, while you're there. I need to, you, don't need to, you don't need to look at my face. You see, they, they, they kicked me out of here for a couple of weeks, and they told me if I'm going to come back, I'm supposed to be a good boy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sitting here, and uh, I'm being a good boy. They say, Rowdy, Rowdy, can't be Rowdy no more. You're supposed to be a good boy and sit here, and I'm the good chip, lolly, but all that kind of stuff, man. Yeah. So... Uh, all I got to say is they've been coming out here and telling you all kinds of stuff. Flair and Valentine saying, Piper walking the line. Flair and Valentine's been saying, we made Charlotte. We made North Carolina. We made it what it is today. <laughs> My goodness gracious. It was here a long time before you're here. I'm being passive. <laughs> but we're going to find out something when it comes to me. We're going to see if the uh, going up uh, is going to be worth the... Uh... And there we hear from Sweet Brown Sugar Mid-Atlantic Champion Jack Briscoe and Roddy Piper back in the studio this week, Roman. Nice to see Piper making an appearance on this program where we know Greg the Hammer Valentine will also be. Yes, and I, I, I like the line by Sweet Brown Sugar. He goes, you must be tired of living. I just <laughs> thought that was kind of a cool line how he said that. And uh, yeah, Piper to come out with the bruise still on his forehead from the incident that took place a couple weeks ago with Flair and Valentine. It was good for the fans to not only see Piper, but see that he's still bruised, you know, the visual effect of that. And uh Piper, like you said, he's he's not going to be the good boy. You know, even he, when he's on the babyface side, his style never changed, just as opponents did. So after we heard from that trio, it was time to see the Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Champion, Jack Briscoe, in the ring against Joe Lauren, who we have not been seeing on TV recently here. 
Joe Lauren, the future road warrior animal, just a massive, massive guy in a big presence. This match only goes for three minutes, ends with Jack Briscoe needing to use a small package after rolling through a body slam attempt. And while why that is so notable is because this was not a traditional Jack Briscoe three-minute style match where there's going to be a lot of holds and it would be more of a Dory Funk Jr.-esque type of performance. Briscoe actually gave Lauren a little bit here and wrestled the match in a little bit of a different fashion, tempering it around to what Lauren can do and what he was strong at, Roman. Yes, at the the very beginning, uh, Animal, Joe Lauren, showed off some power moves by shoving Briscoe into the corner, and there was actually some fans that cheered for Lauren, which was kind of surprising to me because at that time he was a young unknown enhancement talent. And, uh, you know, the, the beautiful thing is how great Briscoe was is that he sold those power moves. Lauren slammed him. He put him in a bear hug and lifted him up in the air for about 10 seconds. And Briscoe got out of it by punching Animal. But the second he got out of it, he started holding the small of his back, selling the back selling road warrior animal strength, you know? And I just thought that even though it was three minutes and Briscoe was on the defensive a little bit, he really did a good job in selling and he made the future road warrior animal look pretty good in this match. We then get a very interesting edit. And this is actually the same way, whether it be on Peacock, the WWE network internationally, or on the older WWE 24 seven service, the classics on demand channel, there is an edit, a noticeable edit that takes place between this Briscoe-Lauren match and the start of Bob Orton Jr. against Masafuchi. That is our next match. There is something there that gets edited. Now, we have some insight a little bit later on as to what that probably was, but you get this unique edit that leads into Bob Orton Jr. and Masafuchi, and this, by far, was the most disappointing thing of the day. And one of the things that certainly didn't need to be on the program, as Fuchi, who, God bless his soul, Uncle Bob, Bob Cottle, keeps referring to as Fuji because, frankly, the last guy of any repute in the area playing a Japanese star was Mr. Fuji, uh, (laughs) the great native Hawaiian that had been spending some time in mid-Atlantic around 1981 and 1982. And in fact, when Gene Anderson had his stroke, It was initially Mr. Fuji, who Ole Anderson had took on for a partner in the short interim time during that that period right there. But it's Masafuchi against Bob Orton Jr., and it only goes 95 seconds. Now, what we do see, though, once again, a different finishing move from Cowboy Bob Orton Jr. And I'm telling you, Roman, before the next show, I'm going to go back and actually get a list here of all the different finishing moves he's used because he uses an over-the-knee backbreaker and then a second rope splash where he comes bounding off the second turnbuckle, splash down onto Fuji, but only 95 seconds for a match that you know between the, these two guys and their technical prowess could have been damn good. Yeah, it was only two minutes, but you can tell they tried to get everything they could out of those two minutes. I mean, there was some action, and Orton's splash I liked because he jumped onto the second turnbuckle and leaped backwards onto Fuji. And the only other guy I've seen do that on any regular basis was rock and roll buck Zumhoff. But Zumhoff would run across the ring, jump onto the second turnbuckle 
and then do that splash backwards. And it looks effective. It looks powerful. It, it looks like it would hurt somebody. And it's not something that was done a lot. And I, I enjoyed that move. And, you know, Orton just once again, proving why he's such a technician, you know, he's got a lot of bags in his tricks, a lot of tricks in his bags, I should say. I know what you meant right there. And I also <laughs> wish that Buck Zumoff could have taken a, a big long run and jumped into a wood chipper. Ah, forget about him. Jack Briscoe, <laughs> and he talked his win over Joe Lauren in the House of Humperdinck because this was the second set of in lieu, lieu of promos uh, that we were seeing because everybody else was seeing localized promos. It was Briscoe talking about the win over Lauren and his battles with the House of Humperdinck, talking about Paul Jones, talking about Bruiser Brody coming in, and then talking about the possibility of facing off against Joe LaDuke. By Briscoe's side was Bob Orton Jr., who didn't have to take on the role of basically carrying the entire babyface roster on his back on interviews today. He just talked about his win and, and, and about facing off against the House of Humberning and being a part of Piper's Palace. That would then bring out, after a break, Sir Oliver Humberding, who joined Bob to watch a VTR of Bruiser Brody wrestling down in Florida in a TV match against the infamous, which means more than famous, as we learned from Three Amigos, Bruce Walkup with J.J. Dillon and former Mid-Atlantic veteran Big John Studd out there on the floor, promising destruction for all of the baby faces, and I mean all of the baby faces, says Sir Oliver Humperdinck, anybody that messes with the house of Humperdinck. So, Roman, you know, we, we only got a little bit of Bruiser Brody there just beating the crap out of walk-up, but uh, if you're a fan of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling and, and only followed other places through the magazines, which... Most people, you know, that that's all they were able to do. This had to be an intimidating thing to see this monster coming into your area. Brody just absolutely dominated this match from beginning to end, and it wasn't a long match, and he really showed, you know, why he's a force to be reckoned with. And when I hear the name Bruce Walkup, Mike, you might be familiar with this. He had a match in Florida against Terry Funk, that was an empty arena steel cage bunkhouse match that was on TV. And it's kind of ironic that he was an enhancement talent going in a big match like that, but it was Funk just beating him to a pulp, basically, to get prepared for his match against Dusty. So you might want to look that up on YouTube, you wrestling fans out there, Terry Funk versus Bruce Walkup. But yeah, just total domination by Bruiser Brody in this match. It was then time for what I would say was our most... I don't know if this was our most disappointing match because I already said that, that Orton and Fucci was, but with the two people that were involved, with the time they were given, with the fact that we had so much shoved onto this show with such short time, Greg the Hammer Valentine, the United States Heavyweight Champion, faced off in a non-title match against Pork Chop Cash. Went 7 minutes and 11 seconds. And... I have been a proponent of these two in the ring with each other before because they are good at going back and forth, giving each other the business, hitting hard, making sure everything looks good, and always being solid. It just wasn't happening today <laughs> for this match. And, you know, in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have had the whole match on the show at all. But if I was going to, a four-minute victory for Greg the Hammer Valentine would have been sufficient. These three minutes going to, I don't know, Orton and Fucci or something like that, I think would have made a lot more sense. A disappointing way, I think, to end 
the match portion of the show. Now, thankfully, it saves itself after this, but I thought as far as matches go, Roman, this time, boy, how, how much would it have been an improvement on the show to see this added on to the match with Steamboat and Youngblood out there with with with, with Frank Monty and Bill White, you know, two veterans, you know, that, that could have used the time? That or, you know, maybe a longer Piper promo or something, you know, this match, you and I are on the same page, Mike. I thought this match went a little bit long, but I did like at the beginning, you kind of see a good shot of Valentine's robe. And you see, like, how impressive that was, you know, like to carry himself as a champion, to have that robe that I'm sure was made by Wrestling 2's wife, Johnny Walker's wife. Uh, she made Flair's robes. I'm sure she probably made that one, too. But and, that and, looked impressive. And, and you know uh, what, Roman, too? Valentine had to. And yeah. let, me, let me jump in there and tell you, too. It was also a really good shot, too, for everybody out there of that old Southern style United States Heavyweight Championship. Yes. because. You know, that's been the thing that we've seen the transition with Dory Funk Jr. coming in. We have seen the changing of the title belts. We saw that old Mid-Atlantic TV title disappear. We saw Joe LaDuke carrying around the Canadian championship for a while as a cover until they got a new belt made. And it was that Southern style and that unique style that I wasn't a big fan of, but there's a lot of people who were and it was freshly painted. To me, it's like the 10 pounds of silver. I always thought that belt looked better when it was freshly painted. I always thought it looked super duper sharp as opposed to the unfinished version that I know a lot of people like. Same way with this one. It was fresh looking. You mentioned the robe. Greg Valentine looked like a million bucks. Yeah, I, I agree with that belt, you know, because the U.S. Heavyweight Championship is supposed to be just underneath the World Heavyweight Champion. And it, it, that belt just did not pop. It looked amateur. It just didn't have that good look to it. But, you know, the robe looked good. Valentine ended up using abdominal stretch into a grapevine for the victory, which I don't ever recall seeing him do that. So, you know, he maybe he's been watching Dory Funk Jr. films or something, but uh, that's how Valentine won that match. And maybe you, you you save cash a little bit, you know, in that, you know, he doesn't have to tap out to the figure four. You get him with the abdominal stretch. You get him to kick back with a, a wrestling move that, you know, again, you know, these are wrestlers and they do wrestling moves. So, you know, a nice change of pace there for Greg the Hammer Valentine. And as I mentioned, even though the matches that we got on the day were not the most spectacular, obviously, when it comes to Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, if the matches don't get you, the promos will. And we've already heard some good ones here. And we go off the air in a very exciting way here as we set up for a trio of heel interviews with Greg the Hammer Valentine, fresh off of his match, Dory Funk Jr., and one half of the World Tag Team Champions, Don Cronoodle, who then have to deal with a special guest. This man right here, the U.S. Heavyweight Champ. Great to just see why I am United States Heavyweight Champion. I've got so many holds. I'm glad you just called me the man with a thousand holds. Dory Funk, come here. Let me catch my breath because it was uh, a tough right, match. Right, that was a beautiful move by Greg Valentine when he uh, won that fall on pork chop cash. I really liked it. I'd like to give fair warning to Stymie and Buckwheat. You know who that is? Uh, no, you gotta Take a real good guess who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Sweet Brown Sugar and Ernie Shavers. Ooh. And I know I've got some matches with Sweet Brown Sugar and lots and lots of money is at stake. Those are important matches to me. I want to keep it between Sweet Brown Sugar and myself. Ernie Shavers better keep his hands in his pockets 
You better not try to lay a fist on me because I know a lot more about fighting than Ernie Shavers ever thought about knowing. All right, Fez, Dory Funk Jr., and I tell you, that, that can be wild anytime you got you got a man like Ernie Shavers in that ring as a referee. Dory, I think you got to be careful. He might. We saw him on that tape earlier floor the world's champion with one right hand. It could happen to Dory Funk. That was the world heavyweight champion that you saw That's him floor, right. too. I know he's tough. I know he's a great boxer. But he better not mess with me because there's a lot of stakes. Shavers has had some big fights. But when I step in the wrestling ring, it's more important to me than any fight that Shavers ever had in his life. All right, fans, right here, one half of the world heavyweight champions, Don Cronodal. Exactly right. Don. That's exactly right. Miracles, miracles, miracles. I never believed in him, but it's no way humanly possible that Jay Youngbud's back. But he's back stronger than ever. His neck's stronger than I can't believe it. There's only one thing left to do, Youngblood and Steamboat. That's to do away with you once and all. We're going to hurt you both. What is he doing out here? They're supposed to be fired for the studio. Why are they letting him out here? He's got his hand Listen, I don't trust this man. He's crazy. He's half nuts. You're not supposed to be coming out here. This is not your interview time. It's my interview time. Just a minute, Greg. Let's see. Roddy, just hang on. I come here. I have been barred before. You are the man that got me barred. I've come out here to prove that I am a man, that I am not afraid to come out, but yet I can conduct myself and I want no trouble. Let me tell you something, you're nothing but a punk. You understand me? You come, you come up here, you try to run rough shot over everybody, you come out here, you try to, you try to, you try to. <laughs> Just like young blood and steamboat. Come in behind somebody's back. It's just like young blood and steamboat. He's been fired. He should be fired. What is this? He's He's been fired. 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 He's he almost broke my jaw. I don't know what he's done to me. Always from behind. Have him You're suspended. Suspend this son of a gun. If he wants to come out here and fight like that, his matches belong in the ring. He ought to be shipped out of here. All right, now you guys. I want you, Ronnie Piper. You understand? You may want me, but I want you worse. I'm sick and tired of looking out after you. I'm sick and tired of looking over the back of my shoulder because, Ronnie Piper, I'm going to grind the other side of that ugly face of yours into the mat. Yeah! Starts watching your back. Everyone else watch your back, Greg. Everybody's going to start watching their back. Steamboat, Youngblood, Sweet Brown Sugar. Roddy Piper, I can't believe this has happened. I'm the United States Heavyweight Champion, Roddy Piper. Eat your heart out. You may come out of here and burst me, but it's going to be the last time. So the trio of bad guy interviews, Dory Funk Jr., Don Cronul, and Greg the Hammer Valentine, Gets all evened out at the end with one right-hand slap from Roddy Piper on the United States Heavyweight Champion before he just walks away. Dory Funk Jr., Don Cronoodle standing there shocked before they go into damage mode, talking about what they're going to do after Piper has already walked away. A fabulous way to end this episode, and frankly, the entire season and year of 1982, Roman, with the MVP, Rowdy Roddy Piper, walking off as the victor. I guess if not the victor, but certainly the uh, the conquering party of today.
Yeah, that was great. And, you know, Piper kind of foreshadowed it earlier on, you know, when he said he wasn't going to be the, the goody goody boy, you know, then they wanted him to behave. And, you know, when Valentine poked him in the chest, he had to know what was coming and Piper just clobbered him and knocked him like, you know, like a, dropped him like a ton of bricks. And I guess it's kind of ironic that you could say that it was the hammer that got nailed. <laughs> and the other really notable thing that comes out of that set of interviews is us calling back to a little bit earlier on in the show when we talked about that weird edit that had taken place between the Jack Briscoe and Bob Orton Jr. matches. And we hear what that probably was when Bob Cottle brings up to Dory Funk the tape of Ernie Shavers flooring the champion with one right hand and... That is undoubtedly Larry Holmes, who was knocked down in the seventh round against Ernie Shavers, who was referred to as half of stymie and buckwheat in that exchange, along with sweet brown sugar, a racially charged comment from Dory Funk Jr., but also highly inaccurate as Ernie Shavers was bald as legendarily with the acorn he was, as Muhammad Ali would call him, <laughs> before Ernie Shavers almost knocked out Muhammad Ali, if I'm not mistaken, broke his jaw as he lost a 15-round decision to Ali a couple years before he had knocked down Larry Holmes. Again, I mentioned, watch uh, Shavers' fights against Ken Norton. Watch him against a lot of guys. Just ridiculous, heavy-handed, right-handed power. And one of those guys like Ronaldo Snipes and... You know, a handful of others. They weren't heavyweight champions, but boy, do they have heavy hands. And he'll be the referee as we go into Christmas night tonight for everybody that was out there watching that show in real time. And then tomorrow night in Greensboro, Roman. But here we are, the end of the show and ultimately the end of 1982. Yes. And in closing, I would like to say the man that contributed the most to 1982 Mid Atlantic Championship Wrestling was my podcast partner, Mike Sepervivi, <laughs> for all his editing, for all the research and everything. And Mike, I would get you a trophy, but I'm afraid Humperdinck, Leroy Brown, and Valentine would break it. I'd get you a cake, but they'd throw your face into it. So for you contributing the most, maybe I'll do a compilation of your favorite wrestler, Avalanche Buzz Tyler. <laughs> you know, one of my re real regrets from the year is we did not get more of Don Carnoodle and Terry Taylor in, in undercard uh, televised matches. I was enjoying that greatly here. And nice callback to who contributed the most as we started <laughs> 1982 with that well, old... Somebody had to... Somebody had to acknowledge it. They, they sure dropped that about three months into the year. <laughs> I tell you, it's as we end 1982, it is, it's such a wild, here's the thing. You can see the cracks forming. You can see where, even though we've got some new talent and even though we've got some really cool, exciting talent, it's not, the reserves are getting a little bit low. And as we go into the road to Greensboro and we get on the expressway to that and we kick it into high gear as we get into Piper and Valentine, we're going to start seeing some, some cracks really develop here in the booking of Dory Funk Jr. And the malaise that the promotion will get into uh, towards the end of 1983, even though we're going into Starcade. And then into 1984, where we have the changeover into Dusty Roads, and we go through a, 
a very, very rough transition all over the place, not only for Crockett Promotions, but for all of professional wrestling. There's definitely peaks and valleys, but man, there is some good stuff to look forward to. You know, you got Hall of Famers and Legends, you know, Steamboat and Piper and Youngblood and Slaughter. There's still a lot to look forward to, and it, it's going to get exciting. There, there's some good stuff coming down the pike, and uh, I wanted to thank everybody out there for listening to us, you know, for listening to all the episodes of 82, for following along. The emails, the instant messages, and everything. Uh, we we thank everybody out there for your support. We really do. Absolutely. In 1983, and that set of podcasts is going to be very interesting, too, is because we have a lot more worldwide wrestling as the year goes on as well, too, that we're going to be tapping into as well. And and having that show and that the fact that it's you know consistently taped after Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling and includes some angles uh, that, that are seen, obviously, on Mid-Atlantic TV, we're going to have a chance to to really review those and get into those as real in real time as well, too. And, and Roman, before we go, just because it is Christmas night, 1982, there were a lot of things taking place tonight. And I just want to kind of get, since you're a, an old historian and an old tape collector yourself, get some of your, just some, some short thoughts from you on today being the day in Dallas, where Ric Flair, Kerry Von Erich, Gordy Hayes, the door gets slammed on Kerry's head. Also today in Florida, you know, Ric Flair, believe it or not, actually wrestled Jake Roberts on the same day as Jake Roberts played Santa Claus and slipped a weapon to Kevin Sullivan to allow him to defeat Dusty Rhodes in a Loser Leaf Florida match that will ultimately bring on the Midnight Rider. And then on Mid-South TV today, we would see... Mr. Wrestling 2 get jumped by Skandar Akbar. He's out. Mr. Olympia's in. Teams with Stagger Lee faces Ted DiBiase and Matt Bourne in a match where the loser who gets pinned must exit the area. That sends out Mr. Olympia. Ends up setting up a feud with him and two and Dog later on. But a lot of stuff going on as we end 1982. Yeah, back then, you know, the holidays were always big cards. You can always count on major things happening on a Thanksgiving or a Christmas, you know, and you had mentioned the Freebirds Von Eric angle, you know, when Michael Hayes was the, was the referee and he was trying to help Carrie, but Carrie didn't want to get help. And then, you know, the cage door got slammed and just the match itself. You look back now, it wasn't that great, but back then, you know, the crowd was just rampant and to start the Freebirds Von Eric's, I mean, just a legendary feud that people still talk about today. The Kevin Sullivan, you know, the Jake Roberts dressing up as Santa Claus. I mean, that was memorable. I mean, just the holidays were always a good time for wrestling. A lot of major events happen on those holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we'll get into those holiday events that took place around Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling after you hear this. Let's take time for this commercial message about the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling events coming up in your area. All right, and as I take you around the circuit, I will note that we don't have any results for this week's Worldwide Wrestling Show, so we will skip right ahead to tonight, Christmas night, at the Charlotte Coliseum. Take it from the opening match on up. Private Nelson defeated King Parsons. Ricky Harris defeated Porkchop Cash. Bill White beat Mike Davis. Johnny Weaver and Sweet Brown Sugar defeated Gene Anderson and Dory Funk Jr. Mike Rotundo 
defeated Big Bad Leroy Brown to win the NWA Mid-Atlantic Television Championship. This would be Brown's last match in Mid-Atlantic proper. He'd go back down to Florida where he'd remain for an entire year before departing to Memphis alongside Ray Candy as the Zambui Express that they had started up down in Florida. That wouldn't happen until January of 1984. So Leroy Brown out, one-man gang in, Mike Rotundo, your new NWA Mid-Atlantic Television Champion. Also on the show, Jack Briscoe defeated Paul Jones. Jimmy Valiant, Bob Orton Jr., and Jerry Briscoe defeated Joe LaDuke, Bruiser Brody, and Sir Oliver Humperdinck. Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Private Canoodle, but didn't win the titles. And Rowdy Roddy Piper defeated Greg Valentine, but also did not take home the U.S. Heavyweight Championship. The next day, Sunday, two big shows, one at the Greensboro Coliseum and one at the Richmond Coliseum. We'll start with Richmond first. King Parsons defeated Frank Monty. Masafuchi defeated Ben Alexander. Abe Jacobs defeated Ken Timms. Porkchop Cash defeated Jim Dalton. Roddy Piper beat Greg Valentine. Sweet Brown Sugar defeated Dory Funk Jr. And Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Private Canoodle. Meanwhile, in Greensboro... One Man Gang defeated Mike Davis. Jerry Briscoe and Bob Orton defeated Gene Anderson and Masafuchi. Mike Rotundo defeated Paul Jones. Jack Briscoe defeated Bruiser Brody by disqualification. Sweet Brown Sugar defeated Dory Funk Jr. in a match with Ernie Shavers as a special ref. Roddy Piper defeated Greg Valentine in a Texas death match. And Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Private Canoodle. Also on Sunday the 26th, it's a Boxing Day Spectacular at Toronto's Maple Leaf Gardens. Angela Mosca defeated Big Bad Leroy Brown by disqualification. This would be Brown's second-to-last match with Frank Tunney's Maple Leaf Wrestling. He'd have a return match with Mosca for the Canadian title on January 9th. Andre the Giant and Salvatore Bolomo defeated Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito. Johnny Weaver defeated Leo Burke by countout. Tony Parisi and Rudy Kay defeated Bobby Bass and Bill White. Billy Red Lines defeated Rick Harris. Farmer Pete defeated Little John. And Terry Kay defeated Private Jim Nelson to win the NWA Canadian Television Championship. Does it in 10 minutes and 58 seconds when Kay pinned Nelson. And we have a clip here from the Maple Leaf Wrestling Archives on YouTube here. And I cut this, I don't know how long ago, but it is Terry Kay with his guitar, doing an interview with Billy Red Lions, and Private Nelson comes up holding the television champion and wants it to be his interview time. And while I don't believe that this promo took place right before this match here on December 26th, it would give you a little bit of the lead-up. And here's Terry Kay introducing his guitar to Private Nelson. I want my time for an interview right now. There's a man that he says it in more ways than one. Now up to the ring for today's, more of today's action. 
So a little tough to hear there, but that's Terry Kay smashing his guitar twice over the head, the rather large head of Private Jim Nelson, who at that time was the NWA Canadian television champion, a belt he would lose on the 26th to Mr. K. We pick it back up on Monday, December 27th, Fayetteville, Cumberland County Memorial Arena. Top matches on that show saw Sweet Brown Sugar defeat Dory Funk Jr. by DQ, and Bob Orton Jr. and Roddy Piper defeat Greg Valentine and Ric Flair. Also on Monday the 27th in Greenville, South Carolina at the Memorial Auditorium, the Briscoe Brothers defeated Bruiser Brody and Gene Anderson, Jimmy Valiant defeated the One Man Gang by disqualification, and Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Private Canoodle. Also on Monday in Brantford, Ontario, we had the television tapings, for Maple Leaf Wrestling at the Civic Center. Names of note for Mid-Atlantic fans, Leroy Brown, Angelo Mosca, Rick Harris, Johnny Weaver, Bobby Bass, Bill White, the K Brothers, Leo Burke, and Private Jim Nelson. Tuesday, the 28th in Raleigh, saw Jimmy Valiant defeat the One Man Gang, Bruiser Brody defeat Porkchop Cash, Paul Jones defeat Jerry Briscoe, Jack Briscoe over the One Man Gang, who was substituting for Joe LaDuke, did that by disqualification, and Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood defeated Sergeant Slaughter and Don Cronoodle. Also on the 28th in Columbia Township Auditorium, King Parsons defeated Jim Dalton by referee's decision, Sweet Brown Sugar defeated Dory Funk Jr., and Roddy Piper and Bob Orton Jr. defeated Ric Flair and Greg Valentine. And that takes us back around to Wednesday, December 29th, 1982, at the WPCQ Studios in Charlotte, North Carolina. Here's WWE's preview for next week. January 1st, 1983. Ricky Steamboat teaches Don Carnoodle a lesson after facing Masafuchi in the main event. As I mentioned earlier on, if you like this show and would like to connect with it more, I invite you to follow us across our many forms of social media, especially on Twitter. Just search at MidAtlanticPod. We would also really appreciate you following us on YouTube. YouTube.com slash MidAtlanticPod. Full and truncated podcasts plus great audio and video clips from the rich history of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling and Jim Crockett Promotions. That's youtube.com slash midatlanticpod. I also invite you to support all of the programs and content here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We don't condescend, and we are dedicated to preserving and accurately archiving the history of professional wrestling. And I'm proud that this show, produced by me, can be a part of that. For Roman Gomez, I'm Mike Sempervivi. Take us home, Bob DeBartolabin and Uncle Bob Cottle. And that'll do it for this week. Until next week, so long for now. Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling has been furnished to this station for broadcast at this time by Jim Crockett Promotions in exchange for commercial consideration.